0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. What is the church supposed to look like? The book of Titus shows us what it means to be changed people living together in peace. Welcome to our sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. And finally, before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture comes from Titus 1, 5 through 16. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those among the circumcision group they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching what they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, All things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning. Peace be with you. Good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us. Before we jump into this text, will you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you grateful for the opportunity to gather. Lord, we recognize and people, we we are bringing a lot of things in here. Maybe we're worn out, maybe we're discouraged, maybe we're anxious, maybe we're fearful, Lord, I thank you for the gift of gathering together with your people in a world that just feels so crazy most of the time, to be reminded that you are God, you are in control, and you are at work in us and through us. Thank you for this church. Thank you for who we are, and we pray that we might... In, in this series and beyond, we might grow more fully into the vision that you have for us. And so I pray today that my words would honor you, would be faithful to your word, and pray that your spirit would move in mighty ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I wanted to start with a question for you guys. Uh, who's the best leader you've ever known personally? Who's the best leader you've ever, It can't be someone like Churchill unless you knew him, then I guess great, you win, but thinking of your life, I mean, it could be a a coach, it could be a boss, CEO, it could be a teacher, it could be a a parachurch ministry leader, it could be a parent, your mom or your dad. Who's who's the best leader you've ever known? And then I want you to think about, you know, put their name down and, and just think about why. Why are they on that list? You know, I've always, as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated by leadership at the age of seven to demonstrate how fascinated I was. I lived in a neighborhood. There was a bunch of kids. It was an awesome neighborhood to grow up in. And so at the age of seven, I decided I was going to bring some organization to the chaos that existed among the neighborhood kids. And so I started Kevin's Cool Club and with a sign-up sheet and like lines that you could, and I pasted it to taped it to my garage door. And five hours later, I went out there with such a sense of anticipation and no one had signed up. And I was utterly devastated. Like leadership's not as easy as I thought it was going to be. Leadership's hard. You know, there it's a billion dollar a year, multi-billion dollar a year industry. There are so many books that have been written. So much has been studied about leadership over the last several decades. And yet, Leadership's in a strange place in our culture. There's a shift in how we think about leaders. There's a lot of skepticism, maybe more skepticism now than ever. I think some of this goes back to Nixon and Watergate and the president, the highest leader in the land and him falling from grace. And then it does. it's not helped by things like CEOs who run their companies into the ground and then skirt off to uh, some pleasant island with loads of cash, leaving other people out to dry, even in the church. I mean, over the last 20 years, the staggering number of leaders who have fallen and fallen hard, people that we'd read their books and we look up to. I have shelves in my office filled with books of men like Ravi Zacharias that I loved and learned so much from. And then you watch them fall Barbara Kellerman, she's a professor on leadership and she wrote a book, it's a fascinating book, it's called The End of Leadership and in it she writes, being a leader has become a mantra. We should all be a leader. It is a presumed path to money and power, a medium for achievement, both individual and institutional and a mechanism for creating change. But there are other parallel truths about leadership. One is that leaders of every sort are in disrepute that the tireless teaching of leadership has brought us no closer to leadership nirvana than we were previously, that we don't have much better an idea of how to grow good leaders or of how to stop or at least slow bad leaders than we did a 100 or even 1,000 years ago. Billions of dollars has been spent, and it doesn't seem like we've made any, any progress You know, we have few heroes, few role models, and yet when we see great leadership, it's inspiring. I mean, it's inspiring at a deep level. Recently, my wife and I watched Band of Brothers again. We try to do that every two years or so to keep me grounded and sane, and I love that series because I think that Major Dick Winters, I've read some of his books, just think he was such a phenomenal leader. And when you see great leaders leading well, it's inspiring. We see this even on a practical level, you know, if you're running late, forgot to take care of dinner, you're going home and you're going to hit the drive-thru even though you hate it. If you're like me, if I see McDonald's has five cars, I'm like, no way, I got to get home before dark. If I see Chick-fil-A has 45 cars, I'm like, we'll be in and out in three minutes, it's fine. <laughs> like, it's amazing, right? I mean, every time my wife and I go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, we just talk about what is happening, and they put a person, why did they put the person here? What are they doing? I mean, it's really, it's beautiful, and it's inspiring. (laughs) And it's great chicken. We call it the gospel bird in our house. Uh, But great leaders, they solve problems, anticipate challenges, serve others, navigate conflict, and what's happening here in Paul's letter to Titus, Titus is a church planter on the island of Crete. And as we talked about last week, Crete is a beautiful island, but it was an ugly culture. And there were tons of problems In the churches, they started there. The second half of what Lindsay read for us, there were people coming in, troublemakers who were teaching things they ought not to be teaching. They were stirring up conflict and divisiveness. They were kind of ripping people off, trying to get money. And we see here in this letter, God's solution. God's solution to this problem is that Titus needs to raise up and appoint good, godly leaders. In particular, this passage is about what's, what Paul calls elders elsewhere in the New Testament. They can be called overseers, or as we tend to know the title, pastors. They're all kind of one and the same. And in this passage, Paul lays out not just a checklist, but he really sketches out a profile of the kind of men that God wants to lead the church. And while there's a narrow focus here on the qualifications for pastors, there's a lot here for all of us. As we think about what does it mean to be a good, godly leader? What does God value in leaders? And so we're going to walk through these qualifications. And then we're going to talk about what does it mean for our church? And then what does it mean to you? And as we look at these qualities and qualifications, I want you to think about the fact that while these are requirements for some, requirements for our pastors here, They're really an invitation to all of us. Things that God is inviting all of us into. So this will be a little different sermon, but it'll be good. I really like this passage. It's challenging. It's it's been surprising, too, for me. Uh, Paul tells Titus, he says, the reason I left you in Crete, this is verse 5, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Verse 6, an elder must be blameless faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And then continuing on in verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. That's the only quality that's repeated twice. And I think it's tempting when you read that to think, well, blameless means sinless, Uh, but that's obviously not the case or else God's church would never have any pastors. Blameless—the word used here—the strict definition from that day would be one who's not been arraigned before a judge, and one who doesn't have like outstanding warrants, you know, out on them. And I think what part of what Paul is getting here is an elder's reputation inside the church and outside the church. There shouldn't be some glaring major character flaw. It shouldn't be my friend Lyle, who pastors at J-town, sojourn J-town. He said, your neighbors shouldn't be shocked when they find out that you're a pastor. Like, they shouldn't be so struck by that. And so that's part of what Paul's getting at. He's talking about the, the reputation and the character you carry. But I think that there's more going on here because elsewhere, when Paul uses this particular word, blameless, he uses it to describe the justifying and purifying power of Christ's death in a believer's life. And so there's a few places, but in Colossians 1, Paul writes, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and this phrase, free from accusation, that's the same word for blameless. If you continue in the faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And so I think what Paul is saying here, he's not just saying, do they have a good reputation? He's saying, do they have a good reputation? Yes. But even more, is their life being shaped and formed and transformed by the power of the gospel? Are they living into and out of the reality that they are justified by faith and blameless in God's sight and seeking to grow and live more fully into that vision and the reason I say this, and I put it plainly, and I'm not trying to be funny, but the first quality of an elder is they should be a Christian. Like the first quality of a pastor is that they should be a Christian. There are a lot of churches that have died because they appointed men who were kind enough or nice enough, but they didn't actually have a vibrant relationship with the living God. And I don't think God's interested in seeing those churches grow. And so Paul says, you must be blameless. And then he kind of gets into, so what does that actually look like to be blameless? And he starts with the home. He says that an elder must be faithful to his wife and literal translation, an elder pastor must be a one woman man. This doesn't mean an elder has to be married, but if an elder is married, he must be a faithful husband. I mean, the covenant of marriage, it's the most significant decision you can make, relational decision you can make in this world. And so if you can't keep that covenant, that's probably a big red flag that you shouldn't be entrusted with other things if you're unfaithful to your spouse. I think I push it even further. It's not just have you been faithful strictly, but, but do you love, particularly for husbands... Is there evidence that he loves his wife as Christ loved the church? It's not just are they sticking it out in their marriage, but are they seeking to live into God's design for marriage? Paul continues, verse six, he says, he also must be a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And I'll say this is a a tricky one, challenging one. I think many pastors wrestled with what exactly does this verse mean? And if their children have to believe, be believers, but what about the doctrine that salvation comes by grace? It's an act of God and a gift of God. It's not something we manipulate. How does that fit in? What age do they have to believe by? How You can go down the, the rabbit trail trying to answer those questions. But I think, I think what Paul is doing here, the word that's translated uh, is children who believe, that word believe could also be translated faithful. And I think what Paul is getting at is that an elder's home must be shaped by their, their beliefs, their faith. Is their faith coming to bear on how they raise their children? Because he contrasts believing or faithful with wild and disobedient. And so Paul's saying, look at their home. They they proclaim that they know Christ and they love Christ. Let's see if that's actually shaping their relationship with their spouse and with their kids. But here's the big point, and this applies to everyone here. Spiritual leadership starts in the home. Spiritual leadership starts in the home. If you want to think about leadership, think about the home first. If you want to know someone's character, Look to their home, look to their marriage, look to how they're raising their kids. That can tell you a lot. You know, there's a, a secular leadership principle that is, I think is really helpful. It says that past performance is the best indication of future behavior. If you want to know what someone's going to do, look at what they've done, not look at what they promise. And I think in the same way, effective leadership in the home is a good indication of one's capacity for spiritual leadership and the church if they can manage their home that's a good sign that they probably can do a good job managing the church and conversely if someone's marriage is in shambles their kids are out of control that should be a big red flag first timothy three if anyone does not know how to manage his own family how can he take care of god's church now i, I want to be clear about something here because i know a lot of marriages are struggling right now and marriages here in this room are in shambles I know that school's been crazy for the last year and a half, and I know that it's made parenting hard and kids are struggling. And I want to be really clear, if, if all's not well on the home front, that doesn't mean you're not qualified to be a Christian. You're still good. You're still in with the Lord. It just means that at this point in life, you wouldn't be qualified for the office of pastor But for all of us, spiritual leadership starts in the home. And I wonder, I wonder if for some of you, the whole reason God brought you here today was just to hear that. Because there are issues in your marriage that you haven't addressed. There's issues at home that you haven't named. And I wonder if the one thing God wants you to take away from this message is instead of moving away from those issues at home, but to step into it. It could be a conversation you've been putting off, an issue you want to address or need to address, anything along those lines. Spiritual leadership starts in the home. Paul continues, verse seven. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. There it is again. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, indisciplined. And, and so here Paul lists five negative traits, five things that would disqualify someone from being appointed as an elder or pastor, and then he gives six positive traits that he wants Titus to be on the lookout for. Starting with the negatives, the first one is overbearing. This is a word that means rigid, domineering, someone who bulldozes other people, one who's quick to assert his rights, never admits his wrongs. In contrast to that kind of, and I mean, that's kind of a vision of leadership that was popular for a long time, like the, the guy who's gonna get it done and at all costs, and he'll steamroll anyone if that's what it takes. And in contrast to that, Paul's saying, no, a godly leader is gonna be someone who leads with gentleness and wisdom. They can hold firmly to bi- biblical convictions, but they're also flexible with their opinions and they're open to others' voices. I think a, a good trait to look for in contrast to overbearing is curiosity. It's asking a lot of questions. You know, one of the challenges of being a pastor is we can be brought into sticky situations. We can be brought in, marriages are in conflict and there's a lot going on there and there's, there's a lot being said and asserted. And a godly leader has to be able to step back and say, what's, what's really going on here? Ask good questions. And there's a proverb someone pointed me to years ago that has served me well as a pastor says that the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. That's stepping back and being able to listen and being open to others' ideas, opinions, and viewpoints. The second disqualifier is they must not be quick-tempered. Now, this doesn't prohibit strong convictions or emotions. This is a prohibition against strong reactions and a pattern of strong reactions of of blowing up of being uh yeah getting hot quick of having a very short fuse quick tempered people aren't typically able to really listen and hear and process they jump to conclusions and they're easily offended they're not going to be able to lead and rule well with judiciousness if they're ruled by their emotions. The next one is not, it's pretty self-explanatory, but not given to drunkenness. And this doesn't mean that it's, it's not necessarily a call to abstain from alcohol, that can be wise, but to avoid drunkenness because a good, godly leader knows the wisdom of moderation and knows the wisdom of keeping their minds about them at all times. The next one, I don't even... Sad we have to say it, but it's there. It's not violent. The word literally means a striker. <laughs> you can get a sense of what Crete was like when Paul's saying, Titus, we need pastors. Just make sure they're not hauling off and punching anyone to try to solve problems in the church. That would be very, very problematic. A striker is one who, who uses physical force or intimidation, they're bullies. And bullies make bad leaders anywhere, but they make especially bad leaders in the church. Godly leaders work towards peace and health. And then the last disqualifier said they must not be pursuing dishonest gain. And there's a lot of debate about exactly what this means, because elsewhere, Paul says that pastors are worthy of a paycheck. The worker deserves his wages. So it's not that, that pastors can't receive a paycheck from the church, but... I think what Paul's getting at is that they shouldn't be in it for the money. Unfortunately, I've seen that a lot over the years, that they got in it for the love of Jesus, but they stayed in it for the love of money. I think this also means that you shouldn't leverage the church and your position in the church. Use the church for your own personal or financial gain because you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it to be faithful. And so those are big kind of big, five big red flags that Paul says, be on guard, watch out for these. And then he moves to the positive. Instead, he says a healthy leader is one who's hospitable. It's where our word hospital comes from. It means love of strangers. It's someone who opens their hearts and their homes to others. Someone who welcomes people in and cares about the outsiders. The next one is, and these next ones kind of get more into the interior world of the person, it's one who loves what is good, one who values virtue and who celebrates the good things and the people around them. They must be self-controlled. The old word for this was temperant, temperate, sensible, prudent, thoughtful. They think through their actions. They think through their words. They don't say everything that comes to their mind. They know sometimes it's best to remain silent than to speak. They're upright they're just, they're honest, they're righteous, fair-minded, they treat people with respect, they're holy, they recognize they've been bought at a price, and they seek to honor God with their lives and their bodies. And then lastly, they're disciplined. This is, I think, self-mastery. This is a, a good summation of a godly leader, that by the grace of God, they are growing in self-discipline. I think of Paul saying, I beat my body and I make it my slave. That I am committed to growing and going to work on myself, to building structures in my life to facilitate continued growth and maturity and godliness. Aristotle, not a Christian, but this is a good word. He said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. For the hardest victory is the victory over self. And so Paul lays these out, all these qualifications. Verse 9, which we're not going to spend much time in, he says, the purpose to which you are raising these men up, these pastors up, it's kind of a short job description for pastors. They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. So they're, they're grounded in the gospel. They're clinging to the gospel. They're growing in gospel truth for the reason and for the purpose that they can encourage others in the gospel with sound doctrine and they can refute those who oppose it. And so right at the heart of the call of a pastor of my job is to hold fast to the word, to encourage, but then to also refute where things go astray. And we're going to talk more about this next week. I want to go back and just sit with these qualifications And talk about them with you and make some observations. Because the longer I sit with them, the more interesting they are to me. As Paul sketches out this vision for godly leaders, it's amazing what he leaves out. He doesn't say they have to be dynamic speakers, he doesn't say that they need great education. There's no demand for seminary training, as valuable and helpful as that can be. There's no mention of great skills or magnificent abilities. Instead, it's all about character. And I think this is especially interesting when you think about, we're definitely given instructions for the church in the New Testament, but there's a lot of things that, there's freedom, and people can disagree exactly about how you do church. That's why we have so many denominations. What kind of music do we sing? Are drums allowed in church? What's the liturgy? What's the architecture like? How do you deal with these All sorts of things. But God made it really clear, while those things aren't entirely clear all the time, God made it really clear that in his leadership economy, the number one thing he's looking for are people of integrity, people with great character. Now, when we look at this list, I think there are two dangers, two ditches we can fall in looking at these qualities. One, we can water down these requirements or even disregard them Altogether, And I think we've seen that happen a lot in the church. I think if you look at the last 20 years at just the dominoes of pastors who've fallen, uh, the churches that have collapsed under bad leadership, I think almost all of them are right here. It's a lack of self-control. Addictions or sexual unfaithfulness of their spouse, it's overbearing leaders who abuse their power, it's leaders who are greedy for gain. It's all, all laid out right here. There are red flags. And I think people in the church, you, you know, you hear the stories. They do the investigations. It's kind of painful stuff to read. But after the fact, people are like, yeah, we kind of knew that was going on. And so why did you let them continue? What happened? I'll be very straightforward with you uh, when I felt called into the ministry in the early 20s, I didn't realize how like dangerous of a calling it is. I had no idea that so many of my mentors and friends, men I admired from afar and admired up close, would fall, not finish the race. Some of them even walk away from the faith and and. I really want to write a different story here, a better story, a better story for myself, a better story for our pastors and our leaders, a better story for the younger pastors that I mentor, a better story for our kids. Like, I want us to be a church filled with people who finish the race. And so we have to ask what happened? How did these, these people, who obviously had some issues, and I don't even think they were evil people, I think they, they went off the rails? How did it happen? And I think what's happened again and again in the church is we value people's gifts over their character. I think we've seen that happen again and again. And it's not wrong to value or celebrate gifts. God gives people gifts to bless the church with them. But when you start valuing gifts over character, all sorts of bad things happen. I heard a pastor pray years ago, and I've tried to echo that prayer, Lord, may my gifts never exceed my character. It's a good prayer for pastors, but it's a good prayer for all of us. Because God cares about character more than he cares about our abilities. So the one danger is we just kind of turn a blind eye to what this text says. The other danger is that we can exaggerate the qualifications for leaders. We can embellish them, build upon them, add to them. And what's really interesting when you actually look at this, there's no miracle that you must perform, no feats of strength you must complete. You don't have to memorize the entire Bible. I mean, if you stop and think about it, all these things are pretty doable. Paul's saying, what do you want to look for in a great leader? Be faithful to your spouse. It's a good start. Raise your kids well, invest in them. Spend time at home. Don't be a bully. Don't be a hothead. Don't be an alcoholic. Don't abuse your position for money. Love what's good. Pursue godliness. Seek after Jesus. I like, think there are very real standards here, but this kind of pers- the kind of person Paul's describing here is not a magical, super talented kind of special alien creature. D.A. Carson commenting on this, he said, the most remarkable feature of this list is that it's unremarkable. Contains nothing about intelligence, decisiveness, drive, power. Almost everything on the list is elsewhere in the New Testament required of all believers. And so really what you're looking for in a leader and a pastor in the church is someone who is living into the call that God has put on all believers. That doesn't mean they're going to live into it perfectly. You know, we... All of our pastors here are still sinners. We still stumble and fall. We make mistakes. Uh, we, can, we can make messes, but at the same time, we feel very blessed, and we can repent, and we can grow from it. It's, not, it's a danger when we try to elevate, especially spiritual leaders, to a place of kind of superhuman level, because they're not. And I think when we do that, it's actually kind of the flip, flip side of the other danger. You know, there's the danger of disregarding the qualities because you love the performance. You love what they do. You love their gifts. You love watching them just do their thing. So who kind of cares about that other stuff? But there's this other one. If you elevate it too high, you, you end up with pastors as performers as well. They're just performing every day of their life, trying to live into a superhuman calling trying to live as perfect human beings when they're not. And a healthy church puts healthy expectations on their leaders. You know, a study recently done by Lifeway said for a pastor to meet their congregants' expectations, they need to work 114 hours a week on average. I love my job, but I do not love it that much. And I love you, but I I love my wife and my kids as well. And so a healthy church, a beautiful church, Places healthy standards and expectations on their leaders, but at the same time, it allows them to be human sized. It allows them to be people who have weaknesses and failings and who have bad days and who have chronic pain that can make them grumpy, all that kind of stuff. But you have the standards. And it's God's desire. And, and I think it's a more beautiful desire. It's different, though. It's different than the celebrity culture. The celebrity culture is who's, who's the anointed one that we're going to put up and we're all going to worship at the altar of. The vision here, pastor is not a performer. I mean, really, the New Testament picture of a pastor is not some great performer or amazing communicator. The picture of a pastor in the New Testament is more like that of a farmer. Like week in and week out, they're being faithful to the task of sowing the word, reaping a harvest, sowing the word, pulling out rocks. It's very ordinary. It's very human. I think it's what we need. And so two takeaways. One for the church, one for me and our, our pastors here, and then one for you. For the church, it's really simple. We pray for your pastors. Pray for us, and pray for us regularly. We're human beings, but we desperately want to honor God. I think I can speak with confidence on behalf of all of the elders here. We all want to honor God and serve you and serve our city. We we recognize that this church is a gift and this calling is a gift and it's a tremendous privilege and we want to steward it well. And in these times where there is so much going on in our society, there's so much unrest, I think the church is still trying to figure out, I think we all are a little bit, what is this new world that we're living in? So much has changed. We pray for us because we don't want to be a church that just retreats and defends. We don't want to just put up plywood on all of our windows and sneak in and sneak out and just care about this. We want to see the gospel go forward in our city, our country, and around the world. Like we're committed to that. We don't want to run from it. We want to step into it. We want to see God stretch out his mighty hand and do powerful works among us. We want to see him save people. We want to see more baptisms. So we need wisdom. We need courage. We need steadfastness. So we pray for us. That's for us. Number two, for you. And I don't want you to go home today with just more information about what to expect of pastors. As I said earlier, I want you to see that while these qualities, they're a requirement for some, they're really an invitation for all of us. And the gift of this passage is Paul. He really just holds forth a vision of Christian maturity, not perfection but maturity. It's pretty, it's kind of a a great scorecard of sorts, you know, depending, if you have a really accusing conscience, then I wouldn't use it as in that way. But it's a great way for us to kind of look and say, how am I doing? Sometimes spiritual growth can be so hard to measure. You know, how's your walk with Jesus? It's great. What are you basing that on? I prayed this morning and I'm doing well today. Then the next day you're discouraged. How's your walk with Jesus? I don't know. I'm discouraged. Like it's hard to say, to actually measure and say, am I growing? This list, it's something that we should all aspire to, whether you're a pastor or a teacher, a small business owner, or a social worker. It's a vision for all. And I think a lot of people look at this and they feel this kind of lump in their throat or pit in their stomach. Like these are so intimidating. And in a sense they can be but I think they're inspiring. If you look and you know people who model this really, really well, they're inspiring people. They inspire me. They give you a vision for a beautiful life. And I mean, think with me. We all, I I think this is who we want to be. Think about people who are quick-tempered and overbearing, lacking self-control, violent. Would you say that they're happy and flourishing in life? No, because they're not living into God's design and they're not seeking to be conformed to the image of God's son. And so I just want you to see the the vision laid forth here of a life of faithfulness, integrity. It's not given by a cruel and demanding God, but by a father who loves his children. And just like I have things I want to see my children grow into, God has things that he wants to see us grow into as well. And so I wonder in particular... And again, if you've got an accusing conscience, you read this list, and you you might say, "I, I fail at all of these. It's like, really? You've never drank alcohol in your life? Well, I drink Listerine, you know, or I swig Listerine. So some of you are like, in your mind, you're like, I am horrible, and I will never meet any of these things. Others of you, you have more excusing consciences, and you're like, yeah, check, done, good. That's not good either, at all. I think we can trust the Spirit when we say man, did, did one or two or three or four of these things really, really pierce you when we went through them? Was there something that you read and you're like, oh, that's kind of me right there, or that's not me and I want to be that person. And I would encourage you, remember, Christianity is a religion of grace, which means we can actually say, oh, I got to grow there. That's a weak spot. That's, that's a place where I'm lagging behind. And we don't have to run from it. We don't have to cover it up like so often happens in the church. Instead, we can say, no, I want to grow into this. And I want to press into this issue. as we're thinking about that, we come to the Lord's table. And we're reminded of the grace that Christ has offered us. Paul, in this list, and I need to be so clear, especially if you're new to church or if you've been in church for a long time, either way, Paul is not giving us a list of things that we have to do in order to be loved by God. Paul is giving us a list of what a life that knows the love of God and is being transformed by it will look like. This isn't a get in the door, this is a growing up in the faith and maturing in the faith. And so for all of us, When we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that we were all desperate sinners, so desperate that the only hope we had was God offering his son on our behalf, his son breaking his body, allowing his body to be broken, allowing his blood to be shed so that we as his people could be forgiven, we could be welcomed in, we could be declared blameless in God's sight, and then we could grow and live into that calling for the rest of our life on this earth. And so if you're here and you're a believer, I encourage you to take part in the Lord's Supper, be reminded of his love for you and the vision he has for your life. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in him who gave his life to save yours. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.